It's been another great year here in the swamp. We had so many amazing stories sent in. Some incredibly strange, some incredibly spine-chilling, and others that definitely left you scratching your head wondering what the heck is going on. Today, we're going to be compiling a bunch of those stories into one extra-long upload for you all. As always, if you enjoy these episodes, be sure to slap that like button as it helps these videos reach more people. Subscribe if you're new and turn on notifications as it helps the swamp grow its ever-expanding waters. I upload new videos multiple times a week in all things natural and supernatural. If you have a story that you would like to share in a future episode, be sure to submit it at swampdweller.net. This bustling holiday season, be sure to look for something nutritious and flavorful to fuel you on your jam-packed days. Factor is America's number one ready-to-eat meal delivery service. It can help you eat well for breakfast, lunch, and dinner with chef-prepared, dietitian-approved, ready-to-eat meals delivered straight to your door. You'll save time and stay on track with your healthy lifestyle while tackling all of your holiday to-dos. Now, I myself have been on the gym grind for quite some time, and eating calories smart and making sure I get all my proteins and other macros in has been important to me. With Factor Meals, it's been much easier for me to make sure my meal prepping is off my list and not a hassle. You can treat yourself to high-quality, delicious meals over the holidays. You can choose from 35-plus chef-crafted meals every single week that support a healthy lifestyle and meet your meal preferences, whether it's calorie-smart, vegan, veggie, protein-plus, or more wholesome options. So what are you waiting for? Join me and many others in the swamp today. Head to factormeals.com swamped50 and use code swamped50 to get 50% off. Again, that's code swamped50 at factormeals.com swamp50 to get 50% off. Hello, Swamp Dweller. It's strange to finally write this after months of meticulously crafting the perfect letter with which to grab your attention. But sadly, those hours were in vain. It's impossible to express the entirety of what happened without including some rather embarrassing details. But I can't keep this to myself any longer. Hopefully, you can see past my mistakes and consider reading this to your viewers. There is no defense for my intentions. But I would like to conclude this preface by saying that I am a different person now. My name is Parker. And I'm a 21-year-old manic-depressive, bipolar college dropout. I'm also a snob and an all-around asshole. This isn't a cry for help, it's an explanation. You see, I've been coming to the swamp since 2018. It's one of a few pleasures in my pathetic life. Any tale where someone suffers more than myself is a treat. But here, I don't know, there's something special about the atmosphere. I've nearly convinced myself I'm visiting a real place. Did I cross a line from a loyal fan to obsessive psycho? Probably, but listen to my whole story before passing judgment. Eventually, listening wasn't enough anymore. I wanted to keep the show going daily, to hear my words shared with everyone here in the swamp. The problem, I was a boring nobody, and apparently so was my family. There wasn't a single haunting or a stalker among us. Finally, I decided to create a work of fiction, but they were dull, and even if you read them, they'd be immediately forgotten. No, if I was going to lie, it was going to be something memorable. 
After trashing a dozen or more drafts, the entire world stopped. My sister died, and I experienced real pain. The previous depressions were nothing compared to the new torments of daily life. Leslie was walking to her car after work when some shitbag just grabbed her. But that's not the story I'm here to tell. It's only the catalyst. I've always wanted to die. Not in a I-can't-take-it-anymore-dramatic-way, in a this-is-pointless-and-I-don't-want-a-passive type of way. After Leslie, it became the bad kind. Wanting justice kept me going at first, but when the shitbag went down shooting, that was gone too. There's a calmness that comes with the decision to die. The pain finally stops because it doesn't matter anymore. It felt like my mind was clear for the first time, and I understood exactly what I wanted to do. Opening a new dock, my fingers danced over the keys as words practically wrote themselves. In minutes, three perfect paragraphs introduced myself as an adventurous hiking enthusiast. I explained my love for this channel and my lifelong desire to visit Akigahara, Japan's suicide forest. It was far from finished, but a beautiful beginning. Next, I bought a plane ticket, a round trip to support my claims. I got a passport and packed my bags. The plan was nearly flawless. I would write of my daring adventures, and when the audience was captivated with my unbelievable discoveries, I would deliver the clincher. The returning tomorrow will update soon. Of course, that was never going to happen. Later, when my body was discovered, well, you get the idea. There was a chance details about my true personality would surface, but most people want the mystery. They'll overlook a few discrepancies in the story if it's good enough, and I thought mine was. I researched the area to ensure no claims contradicted the legends too much and found the subject fascinating. In 2003, a record-breaking 105 bodies were discovered. In 2010, over 200 suicide attempts were made. Due to the drastic increases, they won't release the numbers anymore. In the year 864, Mount Fuji erupted, and where the lava flowed, Akigahara eventually grew. Halfway up the mountain, one can see the forest from high above the treetops. The breathtaking view is the reason it was named Yukai, or Sea of Trees. Unfortunately, the surrounding villages were poor and starving. It was common for families to abandon their elderly in the woods and call it mercy. Many of them committed suicide rather than face weeks of starvation and exposure. This brings us to the Onyo, a vengeful spirit capable of causing physical harm. Many claim these malevolent beings are responsible for most, if not all, of the forest deaths and disappearances. Even experienced hikers tend to lose their way. Now, the public trail ends with no trespassing notices and warning signs. Those who are determined to die simply venture forth and do it. If they're unsure, they tie a ribbon in the trees to guide their possible return. Sometimes, locals volunteer to perform suicide checks and know what it means to find one of those trails. In case you're wondering, I took camping gear, but only to support future claims. We can skip the swank hotel, weird toilets, and actual trauma of public transportation. I'd rather jump to where fantasy and reality diverged. Once I learned what it was like to travel in a crowded city, I knew multiple trips were out of the question. Instead, I took everything on the first day. 
Finding reception at the bottom of the mountain seemed preferable to another round trip. Plus, it fit my narrative better. I was just camping, but things were so scary I came down to send this. At least, that's what I told myself. It wouldn't matter why I went back afterwards. People always make dumb decisions in those situations. Let everyone speculate I forgot something, or maybe I was forced. The important thing was to steer them away from suicide. I don't care what went in its place. Onyo, Yakuza, aliens, pick your poison. From the moment I arrived, things were more difficult than anticipated. The insects were drawn to me like they smelled a foreign delicacy in my blood, and the weight of my gear increased with every step. When the trail split in two, I stopped for a much-needed break. The signposts were in Japanese, but a passing elderly couple speak English well enough to help. They exchanged worried glances after noticing my tent. I insisted my interests only lay in camping, but it was doubtful that they believed me. I'm still in awe of the forest beauty. It's amazing what nature can do when the trees aren't cut every 10 to 20 years. If you leave the trail, even before the forbidden zone, it's practically guaranteed you'll get lost. I stopped for a few more breaks along the way and reached the end in roughly two hours. A small barrier with numerous warnings offered no challenge in preventing my entry, but that's what marks the point of no return for so many. My first glimpse revealed tattered ribbons of all colors and sizes blowing in the breeze. I worried my line would be too easily seen if it started within view of the trail, but then noticed a uniquely shaped tree in the distance. Halfway there, a blue, uncut ribbon could be seen stretching into the dense foliage ahead. It inspired a combination of fear, curiosity, and regret. Turning back, I found a new landmark to the right. When sure no one was nearby, I started my own red lifeline. It was a solid hour before I found a suitable place for the tent. It was the lightest available, but as the clouds gathered overhead, the choice felt regrettable. Not checking the weather is a perfect example of the basic things I overlook in laziness. I set up between two huge trees and hoped the heavy rocks above me would help against the wind. There was nothing to do against flooding except hope it didn't happen. It wasn't until resting inside that I heard the sporadic patter of raindrops and realized the trees blocked most of it. Luckily, it never rained hard enough to be more than a nuisance, but the soothing sounds lulled me to sleep. Nightmares are a common theme in the forest legend, but that's true for most haunted places. Regardless, bad dreams are ineffective threats against those of us intimately familiar with night terrors, as long as we realize we're sleeping. One moment, I was resting comfortably. The next, footsteps were crunching in the distance. I rose to look outside, fully expecting a bear or a deer. My ears couldn't discern how many legs it walked on, just that it was heavy. The sound stopped instantly when I unzipped the flap. Taking a few cautious steps forward, I scanned my surroundings. It was then that I realized Akigahara was a serial killer's paradise, but it was too late for new worries. Besides, I was there to die. If someone wanted to help, why complain? I turned and felt urine stream down my leg. Standing not five feet behind my tent was the elderly couple from before. Except now, they look like zombies. They weren't ghostly apparitions but solid bodies. Their faces were chalk white and peeling. The woman's neck had jagged red slashes, 
and her husband was missing a portion of his skull. With a sickly rotten smile, the man, in perfect English, asked, Are you sure you're only here to camp? Is there anything you'd like to talk about? We're wonderful listeners. As he spoke, they advanced from both sides, and I stumbled backwards. Oh, don't be frightened, dear, his wife added. We only want to help. We have a grandson your age, or we did, until he left us to rot. The sorry, selfish bastard. Her voice became deeper with every word until it no longer resembled a woman's. I retreated faster and soon fell flat onto my back. Twisted roots and rocks jabbed painfully into my skin, but there was no time to stop for the stars dancing in my vision. The couple's approach grew louder with each step, and their cold iron grips could come at any second. I flailed, desperately propelling myself backwards, but my clothes snagged in several places. Finally, when I thought my heart would fail from pure terror, I jolted awake with a loud clap of thunder. Outside in the cool, fresh air, I noticed my clothes were soaked in sweat. Once changed, I started a fire and wondered at the possibility of staying awake for the rest of my life. Having one of those dreams at night was something to avoid. Phantom pain lingered from the imaginary fall. But as a lifelong hypochondriac, I have learned to ignore most aches and ailments. In a blatant act of rebellion, my brain showed me awful things waiting in the forest, creeping closer by the minute. I didn't care about the story anymore. I was trapped. If I fled in the dark, every branch would be fingers, every animal would be demons, and every cold breeze could be the reaper's breath. Shadows darted about in the corner of my eye, but I was paralyzed. The trance was only broken when a figure suddenly lunged into the clearing. I turned my head in time to catch a glimpse of a pale, angry woman before she vanished. Taking advantage of my regained mobility, I dove into the tent. I felt a cold certainty. That's what they wanted, but my anxiety grew in tandem with the darkness. Staying outside was not an option. I felt naked and exposed. Countless eyes were watching, waiting. But for what? The whispers hinted suicide, but I wasn't ready to admit I heard them yet. Things were almost calm during the first hour. Writing seemed like a good distraction, but it was difficult to focus. It wasn't until accidentally dozing that I heard real footsteps. Several. The firelight cast tall, exaggerated shadows onto the tent, and they grew taller with every step. There were at least six, maybe even more. I thought they would force their way inside, but they circled me like vultures. Round and round they went, slowly, never stopping or talking, but occasionally they showed me things. I could hear, smell, and feel everything. Most husbands granted their wives quick, painless deaths before committing suicide, but sometimes they tried to survive out there. Either way, death always came, and the men were always furious when it did. Their rage and hate poured into the land, strengthened its curse with every fresh infusion of fury. What's interesting is how the same children who left them on the mountain were in turn abandoned by their own offspring years later. The Onyo never forgot, and their sons were greeted accordingly. The practice of abandoning the weak may have ended, but its victims remain and they hate us, all of us. The visions continued until all meaning of time was lost. My head ached and my eyes grew heavier with each passing minute. I had drifted off for only a moment when the sound of tearing fabric startled me. 
inches away from my ear, a long black fingernail poked through a small hole, and I screamed in surprise. The finger was immediately replaced by a glazed blue eye. Gripped by panic, I leapt away from the tear, covered it with my pack, and sobbed as the circling footsteps resumed. I stayed that way until dawn, when all fell gloriously silent. There were no retreating footsteps into the forest. They vanished mid-stride as if never there. I opened the flap wide enough for a peek but saw nothing. The gray light of the morning filled me with renewed determination. It was imperative to finish my business before sunset, but I was no longer sure what that entailed. Not wanting to trust any decision made under duress, I reassessed my situation from the beginning. The real doubts began with my letter to you, Mr. Dweller. It was nothing compared to the nightmare of reality. After much soul-searching, the file went into the trash bin where it belonged. When I decided to visit Akigahara, no part of me expected to witness any form of supernatural activity. Now that I had, I would practically be a criminal not to share it with the swamp, right? Admitting I might want to live was too scary. That would mean returning to my miserable existence of everyday life. But it was easier to postpone the suicide rather than cancel. But my priority was getting the hell out of the forest. My gear was packed in ten minutes, and leaving the tent behind was an easy decision. No matter how long I lived, there would be no more camping in my future. Following my red line back to its starting point, I remembered the stranger's blue ribbon. My intention was to take a few pictures, for the story, but then it was clearly older than I had first assumed. The chances of finding a corpse at the other end were extremely high. Seeing a dead body would bother me half as much as a living person would, to be honest. I could be like the YouTubers and claim it was to give closure to a grieving family, or that it was the right thing to do, but I was chasing a story. After twenty minutes, the sound of rushing water alerted me to a stream beyond the cliffside, and the terrain was much better for walking. The forest beauty made it easier to forget about the previous night's nice terror and the morbidity of the current objective. Lost in another fantasy, I wandered past the ribbon and into an old campsite, a gray tent that was flattened beneath a large tree limb, and personal effects were scattered throughout the area. Initially, I worried a person was inside that tent when it was crushed, but that wasn't the case. After a brief inspection of the belongings, I noticed a yellow ribbon leading further into the woods. The dead woman was at the end of a much shorter hike. She'd been there long enough for the rope to eat through her decomposing neck. The noose still hung from the tree, but her head and body lay separately on the ground. Taking a picture was horrible, but no one would believe me without evidence. Her icy dead stare gave me chills. I couldn't look directly at her, only through the camera. With my finger over the button, I took a few more steps and waited for the auto-zoom. And when the shot came into focus, I screamed hard and fell on my ass. The woman's face was back to normal, her lips slightly parted, in a way that she could be described as smiling. Yet, when the picture came into focus, that's exactly what she was doing. Her terrifying grin stretched ear to ear, her lips were blood red and her eyes were suddenly aware and full of hatred. I couldn't take my eyes off her, or she might make that face again, and I desperately needed that picture. After several minutes spent blindly running my hands over the ground, I finally found it. The sad and broken remains of my phone only displayed the soft glow of nothingness. We cast forward past my tantrum, 
Without a phone, there was no way to judge time, but I knew it was early enough to be safely locked in my hotel room before nightfall. When retracing my steps through the ruined campsite, I heard a strange, gargled cry like someone was drowning, and instinctively ran towards the sound. Looking down from the cliff's edge, I froze at the sight below. It wasn't water flowing through the stream, but blood and bone. Skulls littered the banks, and spines stretched far beyond my sight. My head began to spin, and I sank to my knees knowing another vision would soon assault my senses. Countless people jumped from that very spot, and countless more were all pushed. I watched them in an endless loop. So many people, just like me, were surrounded by a horde of ghoulish figures taunting them and poking them until they fell. Death was not always instant. Some only suffered broken bones. Those begged for help until their heads sank below the surface. They were the same gargled cries which led me in the first place. I only returned to my senses when leaning forward, hovering at the tripping point. It was my own doing, but not my subconscious. I only returned to my senses when leaning forward, hovering at the tipping point. It was my own doing, but not my conscious doing. It required all my willpower to carefully lean back and avoid panicked movements. When there was a comfortable amount of distance between myself and the cliff, thunder boomed overhead and the sky was quickly growing dark. That's when I remembered my laptop. It had a clock, but with a little luck, my phone would appear on the Wi-Fi options. At first, I assumed it must be on American time, because why else would it say 5.15pm? The battery was over half full, but the power died when I opened the Wi-Fi settings. When pressing the power button, the light blinked and died. If it was almost 6pm... That meant I missed the sun's entire journey across the sky while I was... what? What could account for so much time? I had done nothing but walk. The answer hit me, and I almost lost a little food in my stomach. It hadn't felt long at the river, but my muscles were weirdly stiff when I returned to my senses, as if confirming my worst fear. The bottom of the sun dipped just behind the mountain's back, and the long shadow fell across the land. That's when the whispers returned but it was hard to distinguish the outside voices from my own while crying in the dirt. Kill yourself now. Forget the story. You can't spend another night out here. No matter who said it, these words were true, and I couldn't help but agree with them. After repacking the computer and finding my flashlight, panic really consumed me. I ran without looking back. The headless woman would be there. There's no way to prove it, but she would. A painful stitch in my side soon forced me to stop. The flashlight definitely would not have enough battery to last all night, but I did not turn it on until it was pitch black. It should have enough power to make it to the public trail at least. The plan was to walk until the light dimmed, then start a fire next to the path. If nothing else, having a plan granted me several minutes of reassurance. I genuinely saw myself making it out of there and being a better person for it. Like one of those life-changing experiences you see in a movie where the main character is entirely a different person at the end. All I needed to do was walk back to the Blue Ribbon. Even I couldn't get lost in that short space between it and the public trail. The ribbon was gone. I followed it when fleeing the river, but it wasn't there anymore. As if answering my screams of frustration... A violent wind blew and a wall of dirt hit my skin like a thousand needles. 
Underneath the howling wind and crunching leaves, there was another sound. Whispers, floating to my ears off the cold breeze. They were secrets and knowledge, questions and answers, promises and threats, all for my ears alone. When the trees were calm once again, I opened my eyes in time to watch the last blue tatters fall to the ground. Instead of being consumed by terror, I felt relieved. The whispers were pleased, and so was I, but immediately upon that realization was the now familiar feeling of waking from a trance. Those feelings hadn't been my own, and the appropriate response to panic began in earnest. Thinking the trail must be close, I used the flashlight and kept moving in the same direction. Fun fact, walking in a straight line is impossible without a guide. You'll always make a circle. Feel free to Google it. I didn't believe it either, but it was an interesting read. I pointed the flashlight into the cluster of trees and took three deep breaths before proceeding. The light bounced with my unsteady movements and the whispers begged me to look for their faces, to follow them home. But if they were trying to lure me right, I needed to go left, and that's when the old couple returned. The moment the light fell on their rotting faces, I came to an abrupt halt, and they laughed at my fear. You'll think he'll wet his pants again? The man asked his wife. Oh, hush, that doesn't count. That was a dream, wasn't it? The woman teased. No telling. He was soaked clean through afterwards. Who knows what fluids came out of where? The husband answered, and they both laughed. My eyes only glanced away for a second, and my head never moved an inch. Yet, they halved the distance between us. Despite every conscious effort to avoid it, I yelped and fell once again. Standing no more than five feet away, they cackled maniacally while the whispers in my head turned to screams. There's only one way to end it, they warned. Consumed by panic, I struggled to my feet and ran around them while hopefully staying on course. When their wild, mocking laughter was gone, I slowed to catch my breath. Turning the flashlight off at that moment was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do, but every second of power that that battery could have was precious. In the dark, my breaths were loud and jagged. It felt like the sound would carry on for miles. As my heart began to slow, a soft whisper spoke into my ear. So closely I felt breath on my neck. Come play with me. It was a child's voice that time, and before a chill ran down the length of my spine, small fingers brushed the tips of my own. I frantically fumbled with the flashlight, nearly dropping it before finding the switch. It was only on for a brief instant and immediately began to dim. As the beam slowly faded, faces began to appear between the trees watching and smiling. A whimper escaped my lips as I banged the flashlight against my palm, causing it to flare back to life for short spurts, only to immediately dim again. The pale faces in the forest blinked in and out of existence with the light, appearing closer with every flash, and the whispers promised, soon. Soon, my entire system shut down. I collapsed and between loud, racking sobs, I apologized for every horrible thing I had done to the spirits in life or after. Somewhere in the corner of my desperate brain, I remembered the only paragraph involving how to appease an Onyo. They want justice, for many reasons. That wasn't feasible here, not in the traditional sense, but I promised to share their story with as many others as possible. Then I repeated it a second time. Part of me hoped that if I kept talking, I wouldn't feel hands reaching from the darkness. The words did nothing to appease the Onyo, but something appreciated the sentiment. The next time the light roared to life, it stayed on. Most of the faces were gone, 
and the ones that remained were beyond the beam's reach. Reaching unsteadily to my feet, I was surprised to see the clouds had parted. The moon and stars were shining brightly. I wasn't foolish enough to let my guard down. There was still a heavy tension in the air, but it was possible to breathe again. Forcing myself to move slowly, I turned in a circle, hoping to see anything familiar. On my third pass, I finally saw it. The end of a blue ribbon tied around a tree. The rest was torn away, but that one beautiful scrap remained. I ran to it. The possibility it would vanish was all too real. Halfway there, a cold steel hand clamped around my ankle, and I face-planted, hard. If not for the mouthful of dirt and leaves, my scream would have surely woken the dead, though, to be fair, most were already awake. As I tried to roll over, a heavy weight fell onto me. It felt like a knee was pressing into the center of my back with two hands on my shoulders. My terror was complete. I could not move or think. No air was getting through, and my vision was going black, but everything was just blank. I thought the distant voices were hallucinations until whatever held me down suddenly vanished with the appearance of multiple flashlights. Fortunately, the hotel manager was always suspicious of my reasons for camping at Akigahara. When I hadn't returned that day, he reported me as missing, and the officials refused to start the search until morning. But the manager said that he had a bad feeling. He and his friends with a few locals who volunteered there all came out and looked immediately. So yeah, I definitely owe that guy my life. There's a lot I'll never know about what actually happens out here, but I've been thinking about it ever since. You know, what you believe is up to you, but I have a theory. Suicide was viewed differently in Japanese culture. In the feudal era, the act of seppuku was an honorable way to take one's own life. It was often carried out with a short blade to the abdomen, ensuring an especially agonizing death by disembowelment. There were a variety of reasons, usually to restore lost honor or to prove one's loyalty. But the important thing is, it wasn't the shameful, cowardly act most Americans view it as. They had a special name and honor traditions to show it was not for the weak. Many poor souls were happy to die. They saw it as putting extra food in their children's mouths and freeing their caretakers from an unnecessary burden. They expected their sacrifice to be honored and remembered, not forgotten on the mountain with their rotting corpse. So I promised to remember, to pass their story on to all who would hear it. I think that's why some decided to let me leave. Not out of kindness or mercy, but a desperation to be known. I'm not sure if that conveys the profound life lessons I've learned, but if nothing else, please try to be less judgmental towards others. Not everyone is raised with the same ideals or opportunities, but we all bleed. Anyway, that's my story. Even if you don't use it for the channel, I don't care. The fact that you saw is plenty. Most importantly, thanks for all the shitty nights you've gotten me through. Whether you know it or not, I think you might have saved a few lives when you started this channel. It's not just that you provide quality content or entertainment, it's that you include all of us in every episode. You've created a second home where all of our friends are welcome like family. I hope you know that. I grew up in a densely forested rural area in central Virginia, and like most kids my age, 10 at the time of this story, I spent a lot of time playing in and around the woods. My best friend and I found a creek one day while exploring different deer trails through the woods. This creek we happened upon was a rare find, 
and the perfect spot for us to play. It was wide and deep enough to swim around in, and had nice, soft mossy banks on either side to rest on after we had tired ourselves out. The water was cool and clear, with no copperheads and no mosquitoes because the water was constantly running. We were psyched. After a few hours of swimming, we had to walk back home for lunch, but made plans to pack lunch the next day so we could have a picnic on the creek banks and spend the whole day there. The next morning, we set out for the woods at around 1pm, planning to have the picnic first and swim after. We entered at the same spot we had the previous day and followed what we thought was the same deer trail. It was not. At the point where we should have found the creek, we walked into a small clearing that was covered in a huge thick ferns. We had never walked past this before, so being both hungry and tired of walking, we both decided to eat in the clearing. We laughed and played around there for a little while, spitting watermelon seeds at each other from our lunch. It was an absolute blast and we were both in wonderful giddy moods. That all changed, however, as soon as we packed up and set out to find the creek. As we walked on, the woods started to feel darker and colder. We got skittish, and I noticed my friend kept whipping her head around to look behind us. After about an hour of walking, we came upon what looked like an entire overgrown bathroom. The sink, toilet, and bathtub, all sitting arranged together and covered in ivy. It is common to find weird stuff like this in the middle of the woods, so we just walked on and made jokes to lighten the mood, calling it Bigfoot's bathroom. After another hour of walking and not seeing anything we recognized, we started to panic. Instead of trying to reach the creek, we were now just trying to find our way back home, or out of the woods at least. I told her we should follow the sun, and eventually we would come up upon a road or someone's property where we could find help. She insisted on trying to find another way, and we began yelling at each other out of fear, and let's be honest, little girl bossiness. I told her if she thought she was so right, she should just go on her way, and we would see who got out first, so we split up. Now, as an adult, I can fully acknowledge I was being a stubborn brat and a bit of an idiot. The worst possible thing we could have done was split up. Not even 10 minutes after splitting up, I began to hear someone walking maybe 100 feet behind me. Thinking it was my friend deciding to go my way after all, I slowed down so she could catch up to me. Instead, whatever it was matched my pace. I slow down, it slows down. I stop, it stops. This went on for what felt like hours. The whole time I was going back and forth on whether it was in my head or it was really something following me. I picked up a big stick, swung it a few times to make sure it was sturdy, just to make sure that if I had to hit somebody with it, it would last, and trucked on. As it began to get dark, I came upon something that made my heart sink into my stomach. It was Bigfoot's bathroom. I had just walked in a huge circle for hours, despite being 100% sure I was following the sun west the entire time. Confused and frustrated, I sat down on a log and just screamed my little heart out while smacking my sticks together repeatedly into the ground. As I tried to collect myself, I heard footsteps again, walking up on from behind me. I called out my friend's name as loud as I could but got no answer. Then, after a short pause, the steps began to run towards me. I jumped up and booked it as fast as I could in the opposite direction. Now, 
This is truly the horrifying part which I typically omit while telling people this story. As I was sprinting through the darkening woods, I began to hear what I thought were church bells. I looked up to see the darkest, deepest cloud I have ever seen in my life. In the middle of it, it was so black, like it was looking into the night sky, and the dark gray around it seemed to be swirling. It gave me a horrible feeling to look at, almost like nausea. What sickened me further is that I realized the sound of the bells were coming through the hole in the cloud. They were definitely loud. I mean, really booming out of this thing. When I realized this, I stopped dead in my tracks. I felt a sense of absolute and overwhelming dread that has gone unmatched in all my 24 years on this planet. Something in my head began screaming that if I do not run away from whatever the hell that cloud was, no one would ever see me again and I would be gone. I did not want to run toward the thing, chasing behind me either though, so I made a sharp right and took off away from both. It was now completely dark, and I was running blindly through the trees smacking through branches, wheezing and tripping every few feet for what seemed like another hour, until I smacked into something low and flew over it, hitting the ground so hard that the air in my lungs was knocked out of me. As I lay there trying to recover, I realized I could not hear the bells anymore. Then my eyes adjusted to the dark, and I realized what had just made me go ass over teeth. It was an old fence. Grabbing hold of it, I prayed that it would lead me to a farm, and sure enough, it did. I walked up over a hill about a mile to get to the farmhouse, explained what had happened, and the farmer graciously gave me a ride back home. I was covered head to toe in scrapes, oozing blood, and was more exhausted than I had ever been in my entire life, but I was finally safe. It was past 9pm when I finally walked through the front door. My friend had gotten back home shortly after we split and figured I had as well, so I hadn't told anybody I was lost, and my family just figured I was still out after dark, which wasn't very uncommon for me. They were shocked when I walked in beat up and crying. No one had been looking for me at all. To this day, I wonder how long they would have waited to come find me if I had not been lucky enough to find the fence and if it would have been too late. Here is a story that occurred to me about four years ago. It was an abnormally cold day. Sure, it can get cold in the late parts of the year, but usually in Louisiana, it doesn't get that cold. Maybe around the high 50s, maybe 60s, but on that day, it was in the low 20s. The carbon dioxide was like a cigarette smoke that came from my mouth as I sighed. I had two layers of coats on, very heavy coats, plus a bunch of other stuff to keep me warm. It was a long day at school, and I was ready to get out of there. The school is surrounded by somewhat dense forest. I always look in the tree line as I walk home from school because I just feel like I'm not alone and I'm being watched. As school ended, I eagerly barked out of the gate and started walking home. My house is a good 30, maybe 40 minutes away. I walked down the same path through the woods as I always did, when suddenly I heard a scream, or more like a screech, that echoed in the forest. It has probably been 20 minutes since I began my walk through the woods, and it's already getting dark. I then begin to smell the stench of something rotten. That is when I almost trip on something. I looked down and almost puked. 
There, in front of me, were the horrifically mangled remains of a man who had gone missing a few days prior. I froze and moved only my eyes spastically left to right. Nothing. Suddenly, the, the, the same screech echoed in the woods, but this time closer than before. I froze again. Then I heard the spine-chilling crunch of leaves and sticks not too far away from where I was. Then, from out of nowhere, the temperature suddenly spiked. It went from freezing to what felt like summer weather, meaning that it gets to almost 110 degrees out of nowhere. By now, I was scared out of my mind. I started fast walking when something felt like it was watching me. I swerved around, and with the dying light, I saw it. It was fast. So fast that I only caught the sheer size of whatever it was. It was at least eight feet tall. I screamed unintentionally and ran. Then, I tripped on the roots of a tree that were probably three-fourths of the way through the forest, which ended up absolutely murdering my right leg. Then, I saw those eyes. It was pitch black and the temperature was so dang hot. But, I know what I was looking at. It was a set of eyes at least 15 feet away, just staring at me. They were glowing yellow with jet black viper pupils. I slowly reached in my back pocket, not leaving the vision of those eyes. My fingers met my phone, and I pulled it out gingerly. I turned the flashlight on, and I still have nightmares about it to this day. In the few seconds I had, I screamed the absolute crap out of my lungs at that sight. The beast was dark crimson in color, almost like blood. Its sternum protruded from its chest with a point. It had long, black hair with two curved crimson horns. It had two pairs of blood-red wings. The upper ones were massive while the lower ones were shorter and thinner. A long crimson tail flicked in the air as well. Instead of fingers, it had what I can describe more like clawed talons. But... What the most horrifying thing about this creature was, was its unholy grin. That darn grin was stretching to its ears and its teeth were huge. It, uh, like, th these teeth, if I had to guess, were at least an, a foot long or so. They were like kitchen knives. Before I could even take a picture, it ran off with such speed that it pulled air away. I started limping away not noticing that the bone in my leg was literally protruding through my skin. Then I fell, looked up, and there it was. It grabbed me and hoisted me in the air. It had me face to face. It snorted in my face. It reeked of decay. It was the most disgusting thing I think I've ever smelled in my life. I was 13 at the time, and I was a major wuss, some would say. I cried. I sobbed, and my face went to tears. It is at that point the creature, maybe feeling sympathetic, cocked its head and put a finger to my mouth. It was burning hot and felt like stone. Then, everything went black. When I came to, I was at my front door, confused. I looked around and saw very clearly the same glowing eyes at me from bushes in the garden. But as soon as I saw them, they vanished. I then looked down at my leg to see that it was back to normal. But I turned my leg over to see something, or someone carved a huge symbol into my knee. I don't know what it was I saw, but I started writing short stories about it ever since.
I know the whole clown thing had its time, but I have a story that I thought would be worth telling you. A few years back in a small town in Michigan, back when the whole killer clown epidemic was going around, I used to think of it as pretty stupid and thought that no one would actually, you know, have any real encounters. I thought maybe nobody died and nobody was actually being stalked. But this story that I'm about to tell you takes place back in the summer and fall of 2017, maybe around the start of August. The summer heat just started to cool down, but the clown story started to rise to what a lot of people were talking about. I never really thought much about it, because the only thing I really ever got scared of was not knowing what is next in life. Occasionally, I would hear rustling in the woods located behind my house when I was either taking out the trash or coming home from sports practice. But one day, I looked out my window and saw a brightly colored man or woman in a clown costume. And at this time, I was home alone and I could in fact not have any chance of standing up for myself if this clown would have come to my house and tried to get in. At this time, I had no phone and the only way I had to pretty much get in contact with people were to run to the neighbor's house. I was forced to go out of my room because I had to use the bathroom really badly but when I came back to watch my spot, the clown was gone. Fast forward about two to three months, I was home alone once more and looked out of my living room window and saw a man peering into my house. So I looked up in shock, and right as he did, me and the man made eye contact. He then smiled with the worst smile I have ever seen in my life. He then flashed the most yellow teeth that I've ever seen, right when I was going to do something, and I passed out from fear. Well... That's what my parents told me, because they got home and picked me up off the ground. To this day, I can still see that clown jello teeth, and every time, I just want to throw up. I don't go near those woods because of how many weird things I've seen, but these clowns that seemingly like to roam around them are the creepiest I've seen yet. Thank you for sharing my story. I know it's a bit late on the killer clown trend, but I do hope you enjoyed my story, even though it might be a little uneventful. This story takes place in the boonies of Allenson, Michigan, about two years ago. I was over at my best friend Marcus's house. His house, for reference, is like a large barn-like structure with a basement. It was about the second week into the summer, and we were up for a snack run, like we normally do when it gets late, and we don't like to wake his grandparents. I don't get scared very easy, and I've always had unnaturally great hearing. So... I could tell when someone was moving around even in the dark with my eyes closed, and know where they were, and a rough idea of how tall they were, and how far they would be. I was pretty great for hide-and-seek. My friend Marcus and our other friends soon began to realize that I was pretty hard to play against. It was around 2 or 3 a.m. We were wide awake and bored. We decided to start a small campfire in the backyard next to their camper, about 300 yards away from the house and surrounding Marcus's grandparents' house is nothing but woods. We sit down and talk for a while, and then our friend Jay wanted to go into the camper for a while because he gets cold easy, and there are blankets in there. We decided that we would go in with him because he didn't want to be left alone. I was watching the fire because it always calms me down. I decided to stay out by the fire for a little longer. 
I started to realize that there were no crickets or bullfrogs making any noise, so I glanced around with my back to the camper, and I didn't see anything. At least, not at first. So, I didn't think anything of it. I start hearing more footsteps, though, coming from the edge of the woods. I looked up to see this dog-like creature on the edge of the woods, just behind the tree line. Its head was easily five to six feet from the ground with yellowish-green eyes that seemed to glow. I didn't think anything of it, because animals are curious, just like we humans are. But I kept an eye on it. But not three minutes later, Marcus comes out of the camper and locked eyes with something to the left. There were two shadowy-like figures walking back and forth in the field, getting closer and closer. He sits down beside me while watching the figures and asked me if I saw them too. I told him I did and described exactly what I was seeing. I told him it felt like they were about 200 feet away and low to the ground. I pointed out the creature I was staring down in the tree line as well and told him to keep an eye out if they got closer, and if they did, go inside the camper and not to come out unless I said otherwise. But thankfully, it didn't come to that. Morning broke and we were all pretty tired, but then I checked later in the day where the creatures stood to see if there were any footprints or anything. I did notice that the grass was matted down, but I didn't notice any distinct footmarks. I didn't tell Marcus or Jay that, because I wanted to keep them out of that stuff, and because once you've had an encounter with one, you're bound to have another one or so. Thank you for sharing my story. I'd appreciate it a lot if I could get any sort of ideas of what it may be. I've been watching your channel for a few years now, and I love the encounters everyone has shared. I think what I saw that night might be a dogman, but I'm not sure. For a little backstory, Daniel was my childhood best friend from my neighborhood, and he lived in the building next to mine in the year of 1993, if I remember correctly but we all called him Dan for short. This is his story, and he swears it's totally true. Since Dan was eight or nine years old, his mother, his stepfather, and he moved to a small neighborhood in a city in South America, which is located in a valley and is surrounded by a mountain and woods on all sides. The neighborhood was on the east side of the city on a dead-end street of a closed neighborhood but there were a lot of green areas all around it, such as small hills with big and small trees, plants, flowers, grass, two parks, and a sports court. When Dan and his family moved to the neighborhood, he was very happy because when they were getting there in his mom's car, he could see lots of places where he could play in and explore. So as a kid, that was a very exciting thing. Even though the hills, woods, and plants that surrounded Dan's new neighborhood looked really nice during the day, and while the sun was up, they looked very dark and creepy at night, and he thought they were really scary. He felt an ominous presence from those woods at night. At that age, Dan was afraid of many things, like the dark, the woods, wolves, black dogs, cats, spiders, sharks, you name it. Just like me, and this was because he was a total mama's boy. And at five years old, what do you expect? When Dan and I met for the first time, we were both playing in the park while our babysitters were watching us and talking to each other. We immediately bonded and became friends because we had a lot of things in common. 
we started talking about our favorite TV shows and movies such as Star Wars, Dragon Ball Z, the X-Men cartoons, and Ninja Turtles, among many others. So, we used to play by pretending we were superheroes or some sort of cartoon character while running around, using the merry-go-round, the slides, the swings, and funny enough, we both had plastic lightsabers. So we fought as if we were Jedis or Ninja Turtles, but we never stayed in the park once the sun went down either, because our sisters did not let us, or we were just too scared, honestly. However, Dan was not my only friend in the neighborhood. I introduced him to my other friends who lived in my building and other buildings and houses. Their names were the following. Eliza, Diego, JP, Mike, Laura, and Gerard. All of us were around the same age, and we all became great friends as the months went by because almost every afternoon we played sports, played in the park, trick-or-treated, had water balloon fights, played Nintendo together, climbed the hills and woods behind our buildings during the day, and even did everything together. The neighborhood kids liked to joke around by saying that the woods behind the buildings were haunted. At that time, we played hide-and-seek or cops and robbers, so we ran around the street until 7pm, because that was our curfew and we had to do our boring homework after that. But Dan and I went to bed late at night in secret while we talked quietly on the phone. That night, it was like 9 or 10 p.m., I think, Dan asked me the following. Did you watch X-Men today? Yeah, dude, of course. I would not miss it for the world. Did you see the fight against Apocalypse and the Four Horsemen? Yeah, dude, that fight was awesome. I loved it. But talking about something else, have you heard some creepy noises behind your building at night? Nah, bro, I'm a deep sleeper, so I usually black out. Wow, I wish I was that lucky. You know, I usually can hear footsteps in those woods at night, and I also sleepwalk sometimes. Well, I think it's time for me to go to sleep. See you tomorrow. Take care, bro. Sure thing, man. Talk to you tomorrow. Take care. Dan hung up his favorite hamburger-shaped phone, sat down in bed, grabbed an old fantasy book about dragons that was on his nightstand, and started reading it until he began to close his eyes and doze off. He fell into a deep sleep and was now dreaming, or so he thought. In his dream, Dan could hear the crickets in the forest, but was woken up by some strange steps walking around the forest and the leaves crunching beneath him, or as if some person or animal was walking in the woods. There are a lot of cats in the neighborhood, so he thought it was one of those cats potentially, maybe a possum or an owl. All of a sudden, he heard a low whisper that beckoned him and said, Daniel, it's Professor X. The X-Men need your help. Come to the woods and help us. This strange but yet familiar voice was very similar to the professor's voice from his favorite cartoon, and it sounded like it was right outside of his window. Since he was a naive and innocent child, he decided to get out of bed, put on his jacket and boots, took his glasses, got out of his apartment, and went to the ground floor. Once he was on the ground floor, he walked to his building's parking lot he felt a little cold, so he rubbed his shoulders with his hands. The voice kept calling out to him, Help the X-Men, Dan. Somehow, he felt extremely attracted to this voice, like metal to a magnet, because he could not get it out of his head. He took a small leap to get on top of a small hill. He then felt very scared, but kept walking into the dark and creepy woods. While he was walking, he heard other footsteps and leaves crunching beside his, he felt like these steps were approaching his position. 
At that moment, he stopped walking so he could hear the steps more clearly since he thought it was some crazy person or an animal that was insane enough to walk in the woods in the middle of the night. There are a lot of cats in this neighborhood, like I said, so Dan thought it was one of those cats. Maybe it was some other sort of animal, but then he heard a noise that sounded like a roar. He thought it sounded very similar to those dinosaurs from Jurassic Park. He had recently seen that movie in theaters, so it was the closest thing he could think of. Suddenly, he heard fast steps from somebody or something running in his direction. Dan broke out of his trance. He looked around, and his little kid's mind felt so terrified that he passed out and fortunately when he hit the ground, his body was positioned between a tall tree and a large boulder. So, he barely heard how this trickster creature ran next to him, circled his location, and then it smelled the air in order to get a scent, but he guessed it decided to leave. Dan assumed... He had passed out for several hours because he was woken up by the sound of a woodpecker, cicadas, and birds that were on a nearby tree. The heat and glare from the sun in his face woke him up. He rubbed his eyes, opened them, and looked all around him. He was in shock and horrified when he looked at his Spider-Man watch and saw that it was 6am. He had woken up in the middle of the forest. He thought he was going to wake up in his bed because he was dreaming, but he had sleepwalked into the forest in order to follow that beckoning voice. He saw his clothes were full of fallen leaves, so Dan quickly stood up, brushed the leaves from his arms and legs, and ran away from that creepy forest, which looked normal during the day. He climbed down the forest until he got into his parking lot. He ran to his building's door, opened it, ran to the elevator, and he saw himself in the mirror and could not believe that happened to him. Dan got to his apartment door, opened the door silently, tiptoed inside the apartment's hallway, and saw that thankfully his mother and father had not waken up yet. So... He went to bed and stood at the ceiling, trying to process what occurred last night. He completely believed his parents when they told him not to listen to strangers, especially if they are in the middle of a dark and creepy forest. So, Dan had many questions and thought to himself, how did this creature imitate Professor X's voice? How did it know he would listen to it? How did it know he loved the X-Men cartoon? Maybe he would never find out. Or maybe he would. Who knows? Hi, Swamp Dweller. I've been listening to your stories for about a month now, and I want to say you are my favorite narrator I have encountered thus far. I always think the stories you tell are fascinating, and they've got me thinking about things that I experienced myself. I am 18 years old and I live in the Netherlands, so do not expect a Bigfoot, Dogman, or any kind of cryptid story. The forests here are just way too small and the population density is too high to have such creatures lurking about in the woods. But, as probably many of you know, that does not mean that weird things do not occur. With that having been said, let me tell my two stories that still make me ponder sometimes. When I was about 13 or 14 years old, a new kid joined my class and became a member of my group of friends who I still see regularly. I will call him Brent to make things easier. Brent lives at the border of the biggest patch of woods in the vicinity of my house, which has an area of about 35 square kilometers, or 13.6 squared miles for the American folk. His family has a respectable piece of land for Dutch standards, 
and has an extra building on the land which is used for office and guest stuff. Next to his land was an abandoned property which consisted of four small buildings of which two were inaccessible. Well, Brent, my friends, and I, being young teens, often went to this property and hung about the place, smashing windows and blowing up toilets and other stuff with fireworks. This eventually grew out to us having a sleepover in the guest house about once a year, during which we would wait until midnight to venture out into those woods. The abandoned property, other towns or sometimes all of them until the sun came up, we would occasionally build and throw Molotov cocktails in the concrete shed of the abandoned property, set off heavy fireworks, and one time even blew up 15 liters of lighter fluid on the sandy plains of the woods. These woods were mainly coniferous, and for whatever reason, sometimes had these sandy plains ranging from small to huge within them. We liked one plain because it was about three miles away from the house, and sand doesn't burn, so we were confident enough to set up fireworks there and not cause a forest fire. This annual night got a name, which roughly translate to Chaos Night. Childish, I know. One Chaos Night, there were only three of us because the rest of the boys had family things to attend to, because it was roughly around Christmas and New Year's Eve. That night was freezing cold, and we went out to walk to the sandy plain in the woods about 5 a.m., I remember it being so cold that the light yellow sand of the plain was frozen and glistening under the sky. During the walk there, however, something strange happened. We were walking single file, Brent in the middle, another friend called Steve in the front, and me in the back. When we were almost at our destination, whilst we were talking, I heard the whispers or mumble of a woman. Just about three to five yards away, directly to my right. Brent and I stopped dead in our tracks because we have never heard something like that before. Brent often walks his dogs in the late evenings through those woods, and I have had enough adventures out here with my grandpa at night in the forest to know the common sounds of the Dutch critters as well. Steve has trouble hearing higher-pitched sounds and was a bit further away from where the sound came from, so he didn't notice it. But Brent spun around, and we both looked at each other confirming that we both heard it. We stood there for a bit, told Steve what we were hearing, and I shined my flashlight in the direction of the sound but never saw anything. This made us shrug it off and continue our little adventure. This might not sound scary at all, but you have to take some facts into consideration. Animals of the woods are extremely shy here, and will run off if they hear you coming, and we were plenty loud. Also, the other animals that would be active on the ground at that time, and maybe would let us come that close would be a moose, or maybe a rat or something. But I can assure you this, this sounded way too human. Brent even agrees with me that it sounded like a woman. So, either there was someone hiding from us, or it was something else entirely. The thought of my experience and what it could have been still gives me chills to think about especially now that I'm a firm believer of the unknown. My second story takes place at Brent's house. This was after our first night of chaos. My friends and I went out to the abandoned property to throw Molotovs again, because the night before was our first time doing a thing like that, and let's just say, a lot of the Molotovs failed. Earlier, I said that we would throw the Mollies in a concrete shed for safety reasons. Yes, we were scoundrels, 
and pretty stupid one. The shed was placed about 10 meters away from the other three buildings that were built in a sort of circle. So, during the night, we had not gone to the three main buildings because the shed was the first thing you would encounter from the way that we had to come. Therefore, we discovered weird symbols painted in red all over the walls of the three main buildings the day after. There certainly was a theme going on because most of them depicted a triangle with an eye that shed a tear in it. The other symbols that were there kind of reminded me of those patterns in cornfields. Me and a friend, Vincent, went into the only main small house which was the only building besides the shed that was accessible. The rest had collapsed some years prior. We noticed that some furniture had been moved around, rather recently, and we were now able to climb up to the attic. Like I said, it was a small house, so we did just that. Vincent went first, and I followed. He found like this casing that you put on the ceiling to cover up your light bulb. I do not know what it is called, but it resembled a globe and it was white. He was also showing it to the rest of my friends through the broken window while jokingly shouting, I found the eye of the Illuminati, referring to the triangle eye symbols outside. While he was doing this, for some reason, I had to take a pee. So, I went pee into this hole that was going into the ground. When I was done, I walked further into the attic which consisted of two rooms, one in the front in which we entered and where Vincent found that weird eye thing. The room in the back was dark and only had one tiny window that was about 8 inches by 8 inches. To my surprise, there was this little filthy window there, also, that resembled an eye within a triangle painted in red. When my eyes adjusted to the dark, I saw that there was a circle painted on the floor with small candles on the outline of it. In the middle of the circle was a self-made morning star on the ground. For those of you who do not know what a morning star is, it is a medieval weapon which consists of a handle with a chain on the far end of it and a ball with spikes protruding out of it. I picked up the weapon and brought it to the window where Vincent was still talking with my friends outside and immediately after I stuck my hand out of the window to show it to everybody, Vincent threw the eye high up in the air and it landed literally on one of the rocks breaking it into a thousand pieces. Vincent's comedy act caused me and the boys to laugh and therefore we weren't that impressed by all of it. Sure, we were perplexed that something like that would even be there, but not necessarily terrified. After that we threw some mollies and took the Morning Star back to Brent's house where he stashed it somewhere. That abandoned property has since been demolished and other people have built their houses there and the Morning Star should still be somewhere in Brent's house although I haven't seen it since that day. We still go into those woods at night sometimes, and we've had a couple of weird things happen again. If someone wants to know more or even see some pictures of the Morning Star and symbols, maybe I can send them in. Although these stories may not seem scary on their own, together these experiences creep the hell out of me and often make me wonder what was in those woods that night and who left that Morning Star there and why. If someone has a clue, please leave it in the comments. Thank you for listening, and stay safe. Hi Swamp Dweller, I don't know if you'd be interested in a story from England. It's kind of long-winded, and not necessarily the most terrifying thing, but it's a weird and scary experience that me and my partner will never forget. To set the scene, we live in a busy city in the South Midlands of England. 
We have a bully breed dog and take him out for walks in the surrounding parks and woods quite often. I'm quite into the paranormal and have experienced lots of things. My mom is a spiritual medium, so I guess it comes with the territory. My partner, however, is a science graduate and is a very everything-has-an-explanation sort of person. Anyway, on this day, we decided to go to a popular picnic park just on the outskirts of the city. It's almost always full of families, dog walkers, and picnickers. It was late spring, and the temperature was just starting to hit summer heat. It was a sunny day, not a cloud in the sky, and no wind. The park was full of the usual, parents and kids with their families and dogs, old couples going for walks and the like. Here in England, bully breeds are still quite stigmatized and feared, so we usually avoid going where there are lots of people. Not that our dog is dangerous or anything, he's just overly friendly, and people freak out when he trots up to greet them. So we decided to go off the beaten track. To give you a rough idea, the park has a small lake in the center, with paths and benches that surround it. Just off one of those paths are a few farmer's fields in a thick wooded area which snakes around into another path which eventually leads back to the park. We decided to go through the cattle gate, which leads up through the farmer's fields. It was so hot and beautiful that day that nothing spooky or creepy even crossed our minds. Even though you could no longer see anyone, you could still hear kids playing and dogs barking in the distance. As we came up to the wooded area, whilst still on the dirt path alongside it, I noticed a man walking through the thick brush. I thought it was weird, because he was coming from the opposite end of the woods which literally leads to nothing. No houses or roads or anything of the likes. Just endless fields and woods. I just told myself, oh, he must be looking for his dog or something. My partner noticed him too, and we shared a look to each other like, what a weirdo, and carried on walking. But I couldn't help but look at him. He looked so strange. It must have been close to 30 degrees, and he was in a thick black hoodie, black trousers, or sweats. He had longish, dirty blonde hair, and maybe around our age, so mid-twenties. But what was more strange is he had a dazed sort of smile on his face and his head kind of tilted to one side. When he walked, he swayed from side to side slightly. I tried to push it to the back of my mind, telling myself that he was just a stoner or something looking for his dog. He wasn't calling or making noises to get a dog's attention or anything, which was even more strange to me. Anyway, I kept looking back over my shoulder. He was in the brush for a little while longer but then joined the path we were on and began walking our way. He must have been about 30 feet behind us. I noticed how tall he was now that we were on the same path and how broad he was. He must have been about 6 foot 9, closer to 7. He was huge, maybe 17 or 18 stone, so something like 240 to 250 pounds more or less. Around this point we noticed everything was silent. There were no kids laughing, no indistinctive family chatter, no dogs barking, no birds tweeting, nothing. The only sound that I could discern was the sound of our footsteps in the wind. But there was no wind. It was roasting hot, not even a slight breeze yet. We could hear wind blowing through the trees. Even though the sun was beating down, it felt darker somehow. Like everything was, I don't know, desaturated. My partner started to freak out and strangely so did our dog. 
Now this really struck me as weird. Our boy's the kind of dog who would greet anyone, run up to them to play. But no, he wouldn't even look back at me or the man. My partner and dog started to speed up to get away from the wooded area this weird behemoth of a man was in. I really started to freak out myself, but don't want to upset my partner even further, so I kept my cool, quiet, and kept my pace. I looked over my shoulder again and he was closer, maybe 25 feet away. Now for a bit of context, as you exit the wooded area you come to a path which is surrounded on either side with tall thick bushes and it curves around widely to lead you back to the main park. The curve is so wide that you can see far ahead, but you can only see the bushes where it curves. Neither of the exits are in view. As we reach this path, I check again, and the guy is closer still. It's still silent. All I can hear is the faint wind sounds in our footsteps, but nothing from the man. He's smiling still in that dazed sort of way, and still is kind of swaying. Everything still felt weird and dull, and that's the only way I can describe it. I thought to myself, if this weird bloke is going to try something, I'm going to have to protect my partner. I'm only 5'8 myself, and not much of a fighter. So I grabbed my car keys and put them between my fingers in my pocket. If this dude wanted to try anything, I'd smash him in the face and leg it. I'm not fast either, but I convinced myself I'd be faster than him. I check over my shoulder again, and he is still close. I start to hype myself up. He was coming and I was ready. I realized I couldn't hear him at all though. He was probably about 15 feet behind me now. My partner and dog had literally hightailed it up the path, but why couldn't I hear any footsteps from him? Another quick glance and he was right behind me, five feet or so. This was it. If I was going to do anything, it had to be now. If I could keep the element of surprise on my side, I might be able to stand a chance and give us the opportunity to run. I swung around as quick as I could, and went to shout out at him and swipe at him. But he was gone. There was nothing there, no man or no sign of him whatsoever. I paused and looked around. He couldn't have run back along the path. He couldn't be that quick. I would still be able to see him as the path winds around so widely he would still be in view. He couldn't have jumped through either side of the path into the rows of bushes as I would have heard it, and seen the rustling of the bushes or the hole he would have made. He had simply vanished. I stayed there for a moment, and only when I decided to walk on to check on my other half and the dog, that I realized I could hear the park again. The wind noises had gone, and the day returned to normal. The sunlight was no longer dull, and everything seemed normal. I got shivers and ran to catch up. I asked my partner if they had seen him go anywhere, but they didn't see anything. They just said he really freaked them out and they didn't want to be there anymore. I could see that they were really shaken up. The dog was back to normal though, wagging his tail and wanting to play and explore. We decided to cut our walk short and drive home. After we got home, I rang my mom and told her all about it. She advised me to check reports for missing people or deaths related to that area, which I did and weirdly enough, lots of people have died there by suicide or overdoses, but none of the people I found online matched this description. I tried to forget about it and get back to normal life and all that. I was applying to go back to college at the time, so I didn't really need to be thinking about giant ghost men. After a few days, it had left our minds and we got back to normality. A few nights later, I wake up in the middle of the night and open my eyes. As they adjust to our darkness, 
I look up at the ceiling where the orange glow of the street lamp shines through our window, and my heart stops. He was there, stood over our bed. He was so tall with his head just below the ceiling light. He still had that weird, dazed smile, all lit up with the orange glow. I jump up and punch at him as hard as I can, but my fist doesn't meet anything, because there was nothing there. I turned on the light and looked around, found nothing. I absolutely ransacked the house and found not a single person. I've never seen him since, but after seeing him in our bedroom, our apartment felt horrid afterwards. It never felt homey or safe again, and we would hear horrible things. For example, at one point in the middle of the night, I heard my own voice call my partner's name from the other side of our bedroom. We heard walking in our attic, which was too low for people to walk in, and our pets would not sleep alone. They would always growl at corners of the house. We left that flat after a year or so of dealing with the weird ghostly experiences. My partner, of course, kept denying that it was a ghost. She just said that it couldn't be explained. Hello, Swamp Dweller. I've sent in a few stories in the past, going under a different alias. Speaking about my creepy experience with camping a few years ago. But around a week ago, I had another very strange thing happen to me. I'm 14 years old and from Belfast, Ireland. I go out a lot on nighttime walks with my friends, and most nights we only go on short ones. But this night we planned on doing something else. I met my friend on her street and then we went and picked up my other friend. For the story, I'll call one Katie and the other one Ellie. We walked to the bus stop closest to my friend's street and got a bus to the university area of my city. As there are lots of cafes and restaurants around there, and it's quite bright. We got off the bus at the stop and started walking, looking for a cafe to go into, but we couldn't find one, so we decided to walk straight into the city center, which was a short walk away. We found an open cafe and decided to go in for a snack and something to drink. It was around 7pm and it was getting dark outside, so we decided to leave the cafe and get another bus back home. We got on the bus that would take all three of us home, but at the second stop a ticket inspector got on and kicked us off the bus when he realized we had no tickets. It was now raining slightly. We decided we would just walk to another bus stop and get on a bus that we knew would be inspector free. We walked around five minutes to get to that bus stop, and when we got there, there wasn't another one around for about 20 minutes. Damn it, let's just take the other bus to the field and then walk through it to get home, I said to both of my friends. They agreed, so we hopped on the bus and took a seat. On the bus ride back, it started to rain even heavier. When we got to the last stop, we were the last ones on the bus, and the stop happened to be in a very Protestant area. So... We already felt quite unsafe being there, as two out of three of us had very unique Catholic names and were afraid of some people hearing them and potentially harming us. I know it might sound a little weird to mention this, but unfortunately it is a true issue in the area we grew up in. We walked through some streets and finally got to the football field that backed onto the forest that we would need to cut through to get home. We sprinted across the football field, trying not to get our shoes too wet as it had been raining for a few days, and the field happened to be quite flooded. We got to the edge of the forest, and when the rain got a little bit heavier than it was before, the forest was pitch black, so we turned on our flashlights to see where we were going. We began our walk into the forest, 
taking careful steps as to not slip on the wet, muddy ground. Now, I spent my whole summer in that forest, and I would be confident in saying that I knew it like the back of my hand. All three of us do. When you walk in, there's a straight path that leads you through two small fence posts after walking for about two minutes. When you get past those fence posts, you take a right and walk for about two minutes. Then, you arrive at the other side of the forest, where you exit into a huge field, which then leads you home. Although, when we took a right at the two tall fence posts, it didn't lead us there at all. The whole forest changed shape. We had been walking down this path for around five minutes now, and the rain was so loud we could hardly hear each other. This was when we started to panic. We were running around now, trying desperately to find the way out of this place. We walked up a small hill to a big tree, a tree that we had never seen before, a tree that was not there before, ever. I looked around to see my friend Katie as pale as I had ever seen her before. What do we do now? She screamed. I shouted back to her that I didn't know. Then her flashlight flickered. An iPhone flashlight. Phone flashlights never do that. Then, mine went out. I started to panic as it was now so dark you couldn't even see your hand in front of your face. Then, just after that happened, my friend Katie got a call from my friend Ellie's twin sister who happened to not be there that night. Katie spoke to her in a panic, but this only lasted a few seconds as her phone randomly hung up on her. Out of the blue, it hung up all by itself and died. Weird. It was fully charged. We continued our walkthrough, still trying to find our way back. After taking multiple turns that we had never seen before, we finally reached the clearing that we had been looking for. It felt like hours of walking, and there's no telling how long it actually took. We stopped for a minute or two to calm down, when, from behind us, I heard twigs cracking, almost as if there was someone walking in circles around us. I told my friends we had to leave immediately, trying not to panic them. We got to the bottom of the field we had ended up in, and I checked the time. It was 8.45, but we arrived at the start of the forest at 8.39. There is not a chance in hell that that whole thing only lasted for five minutes. It felt like... All three of us had been there for an hour minimum, but it was only five or six minutes. I got home and couldn't stop shaking the entire night. What just happened? Why did it feel like such a long time? Why did the flashlights flicker and then go out? Why did the forest change shape completely? Why did my friend's phone hang up? And lastly, why did I hear someone circling us in the clearing? We have all agreed to never go there in the dark, unless we are with a large group of people. If anyone has any idea what this could have been, or what we could have experienced, please feel free to inform us in the comments down below. Hello Swamp Dweller. To start this off, I'm a 29-year-old man, and three times a year I head up to Georgia, in the mountains, to camp, fish, and have a great time. But after my last trip, I doubt I will ever go again. I had been super excited the week before. I was to head up to Georgia, and when the day finally came, I could have died with happiness. I loaded up my dog, Buddy, and all of my gear, and started the trip. About an hour into my trip, I saw a road that I've never been on before. I decided I would take it and just go down for about an hour, since I was ahead of schedule and then eventually it would go back down to the main road. 
I lost track of time and before I knew it, the sun was setting. I grabbed my gear and buddy and we hiked out about 10 minutes before finding a nice clearing in the forest. I set up camp and looked around my camp. I saw a small man-made trail leading into the dark trees and decided that me and Buddy did need to take a walk. I grabbed my walking stick, Buddy's leash, and a headlamp and we headed on to the small trail. I knew something was wrong when I couldn't hear a single insect or animal. Me and Buddy stopped at a little creek when I saw something terrifying. Two eyes reflecting off of my headlamp. This thing was tall, six or seven feet, and the eyes were too big to be human. My dog was usually very protective of me, but instead of barking or doing something, he whimpered and peed on my leg. I've never seen him act like this before. He's seen bears before and has scared away mountain lions and squared up with many other animals, but has never peed in fear. As Buddy kept whimpering, I felt terrible. Like this thing hated me, and it could rip me to shreds if it wanted to at any given moment. Then it made the scariest noise I have ever heard. It sounded like a maniac screaming. Me and Buddy bolted back to our camp. In our camp, I could still hear the thing. I was absolutely not staying here. I packed up the camp as Buddy stood watch. We ran to my truck and got the heck out of there. I went straight home and didn't sleep that entire night. Later, I looked up on the internet what could have made that noise and nothing I could find came close to it. I really don't know what that was, but there's something weird in the woods of Georgia. Hey Swamp Dweller, my name is Heath, and I'm 26 years old. I've been watching your channel for almost a year now, but this is my first time writing in. I've never believed in the paranormal, but my passion for scary stories is second only to my love for nature. In a lifetime of camping and hiking, I've had more close calls than I can count, but none that would be mistaken for supernatural. Then there's what happened to me on my trip to Brazil. I'm not sure what this story classifies as, but it was one of the scariest experiences of my life. Other than that, I'll let you be the judge. Recovering from that trip has been difficult, so my therapist recommended writing it down. It didn't help, but it won't be wasted effort if you can find use for it. I've always loved the outdoors. Every birthday and Christmas of my childhood revolved around camping. By age 18, I had hiked trails in 14 states and 3 countries. My bucket list grew daily, but the Amazon rainforest was uncontested at the top. I thought my parents would plan the trip as a graduation present, but they felt the whole journey was too dangerous. Instead, they sent me to the Galloway Forest in Scotland. Don't get me wrong, it was quickly one of the most beautiful places I have ever seen, but my heart was set elsewhere. The next several years of college and starting my career passed by in a blur, but I could finally afford my ultimate three-week adventure. Once in Brazil, it took a few days for guides to lead me to my cabin, but I don't mind. It was deep in the forest, and walking through the Amazon was like walking through a movie scene. When we finally arrived, I was pleased to see several marked trails surrounding the area. 
Our guides were anxious to be on their way and didn't say much aside from a promise to return at the agreed time. If there was an emergency, my only way of contacting the outside world was through an old CB radio. I was pleased with the cabin. It was cozy and everything I could need. It included a minor, hand-drawn map of the area. The first three days were everything I dreamt of and more. Following the shorter paths, I photographed countless plants and insects, though the animals were shy. On the fourth day, when I was more comfortable with the area, I decided to walk one of the longer trails. Soon I was fully engrossed with beautiful sights. Every way I turned was something else I had never seen. It's tragic how many of those exotic wonders are threatened with extinction. I can't be sure how far or long I traveled, but the path slowly became narrower until ending altogether. It was quickly apparent there were no trail markers in sight and my heart dropped to my stomach like a lead weight. It didn't seem like I could have gone that far. I should have been able to turn around and find the path easily. Roughly 10 yards back, the thin trail split. I looked at the area from every angle, but it was all the same. I'll never start a hike without a map and compass again. It doesn't matter where I'm at. Relying on marked trails is not enough. Not only would I have remembered the map was on the kitchen table, but I would have also seen the directions were reversed the moment I stepped on the path. The trail led north, but I assumed it was south because I remembered the drawing. The cabin stood in the center, and the tracks were numbered. I took number five, which led from the front door down towards the bottom of the paper. It would have been straightforward to check if I hadn't let excitement compromise safety. I realized it probably wouldn't have happened if I brought someone else, but I'm glad I didn't. If another person had been there and it still happened, I'd never forgive myself. Period. Thankfully, I did have my compass, but because of my assumptions regarding the directions, I mistakenly followed the compass north. The thought that it could be reversed never crossed my mind. At this point, I mostly was upset with wasting a day, but I wasn't necessarily afraid. There was no reason to think I would be out here after dark. It took several hours of marching through dense jungle before I could begin to accept the plan for the reality of being lost. The light was fading fast as the sun disappeared behind the vast green canopy. There wasn't much time to prepare, but I cleared a space next to a large tree and sat. Even my flashlight was in the cabin. All I had were my camera and cell phone. Since there was no service, I decided to save the phone for an emergency. The camera was not much, but when sitting in total darkness, any slight glow is a comfort. I never intended to sleep, but the mosquitoes wouldn't have allowed it. Those bastards were enough to drive anyone insane. They even bit my eyelids. That part was especially miserable. As badly as I wanted to scream, I kept quiet and alert. For the first several hours, there were only the cry of prey and the sound of charging predators, but they remained at a comfortable distance until 3 a.m. My eyes burned, and my vision was blurry, yet there was the sound of something much closer. Footsteps that were crystal clear. They were the light, stealthy steps of something dangerous, and a chill raced down my spine. The mystery creature was coming closer, and my only weapon was a pocket knife. I acted more on instinct than a decision. Without realizing what I had planned to do, I leapt to my feet and charged toward the sound, screaming like a madman. Several animals, not just one, scattered in different directions. They had been closer than I even suspected by moving just as they prepared to pounce, adding an extra element of surprise that probably saved my life. 
Whatever they were, they didn't come back for more. Now, wide awake, I waited on my feet for the last hour of the night. I resumed walking with the first gray light of dawn and ate a power bar. There were two more and another bottle of water, but I still believed the cabin was nearby. I wasn't concerned with rationing my supplies just yet. Two hours later, when I still had not seen anything familiar, my brain began to entertain the notion of being lost. I was out of excuses for why it was taking so long. Part of me didn't want to admit I made such a rookie mistake. This was not like wandering off in a forest back home. The Amazon is over two million square miles and filled with deadly creatures. It's not a matter of avoiding a few predators. Even plants and insects can kill you. Once I could finally accept my situation, I stopped thinking. Had I stayed put when I initially got lost on the trail, like every child is taught, I could have made a shelter and waited to be found when I failed to check in on the radio. Instead, I fell victim to my ego and had now no idea how far away or in what direction the cabin was. I had to keep moving, but couldn't decide where. Did I keep heading north, retrace my steps south, I could split the difference and try east, towards the village I'd visited. It was way too far to walk though, but the idea of moving towards something seemed comforting. As I contemplated these choices, I sat to inventory my supplies. The temperature was in the 90s, and what little I had to drink was immediately lost through sweat. My last bottle of water would barely get me through the day. While trying to estimate how long it would be before a search began, there was a sudden excruciating pain in my hip. I tried to imagine what being shot felt like, and this is probably it. Jumping up, my hand went to the spot instinctively, and something was latched on. The pain was unlike anything I had ever experienced. I genuinely feared losing consciousness before getting it off me. Once it was dead, I carefully pulled it off slowly, so the stinger wasn't left behind. It had crawled into the one place my shirt came untucked. Due to the extreme pain, I expected it was a spider or a hornet. Instead, it was a bullet ant. Locals warned me about them, but I thought they were just having fun with me. They said they have the most painful sting in the world, and I can believe that now. The resulting fire in my hip began spreading in every direction, and soon a numbing sensation followed behind it. The bite was already swollen, and my skin was growing redder by the second. As my muscles began to spasm, I became convinced it was an allergic reaction. I had nothing that could help me if it was, and I started digging through my bag out of sheer desperation. That's when I heard the moan for the first time. It was only once, low and full of despair, but it froze me in place. I took a slow look in each direction and saw nothing, and another wave of pain racked my body, and I fell flat. As the world faded away, I honestly thought I was dying. Thankfully, I was only unconscious for a few minutes, but I woke up to yet another peak of agony. The worst part, there was no chance to acclimate to pain because it would just fade enough to let you breathe. Then wham, back with a vengeance. It's impossible to describe the hopelessness I felt in that moment. I had to keep moving, even if it was at a crawl. Most of the day was passed in a delirious spurt of semi-consciousness but I was forced to stop early anyway. There would have been hours of light left, but a tropical storm blew in from nowhere. One night, the weather was fine, the next it was pouring rain, and the wind was blowing too hard to face. I could barely see a foot ahead of me, but there was no choice but to stop until it passed. 
Shelter options were non-existent, but I sat against a giant tree and dug a nook into its base. It helped with the wind, but soon filled with water, and it made it too cold and unbearable. I reached a point where I couldn't tell if my body was convulsing from the temperature drop or the ant bite. Every part of me ached terribly. The entirety of my lower back and one ash cheek were in utter agony. Yet all I could do was lie there, waiting. I'm not ashamed to say I cried like a girl. There are not many other people who wouldn't. Just when I thought I couldn't feel any worse, lightning struck a tree only 20 yards away, and it fell directly over me. If the thick branches hadn't caught the tree, I would have died right then and there. But that part wasn't so bad. The fallen giant provided shelter from the rain and allowed me to look around. That's when I saw a thin, hooded figure in the distance. My heart skipped at least three beats while I experienced a short-lived burst of euphoric relief. Then I realized it simply wasn't possible. Even if I sat ten feet from a village, there was no chance of someone standing out in that storm. As the crushing disappointment washed away any residual feelings of joy, another bright flash lit the area. I expected to see the tree or shrub I had confused for a person, but instead I now saw the frighteningly clear image of a skinny, hooded figure with its back to me. Seconds later, a bolt of lightning followed and despite heavy winds, not even the figure's robe flapped in the breeze. Its lack of movement unnerved me the most. At some point, I began holding my breath between flashes. With each one, I expected to see the shape for what it was. But they only revealed the same horrible image until the final, most extended flash of the light. For several seconds, the forest was bright as day, and the figure was now facing me. Inside, his hood was pitch black except for two bright white eyes shining out of the darkness. They stared at me and made my insides feel colder than my wet skin. There was no doubt whatsoever those eyes saw me. That gaze bore a physical, almost hungry touch. When the light was gone, I, I felt a horrifying certainty. The figure was coming for me. It didn't matter if there were no footsteps. In my mind, I could see it gliding above the ground as clearly as I saw those haunting eyes only seconds before. Now that I needed the lightning, the storm began to calm. It was 2.30 a.m., but I was no longer worried about the sleep. Only the lurking, hooded figure. I had hours of nothing to do but think as I waited to die, or for sunrise, whichever came first. I didn't particularly care. The only logical conclusion was a hallucination, and considering my desperate need to eat and sleep, I was beginning to believe that was precisely what had happened. By 4 a.m. the rain was now slow drizzle, and I was drifting off. My body was ready to quit. The only thing that mattered was not being conscious anymore. If something got me in my sleep, so be it. For an hour I slept but mostly felt aware. Before seeing my watch, I was sure only a few minutes had passed when another low, agonized moan shook me to the core. I was up instantly, fumbling for my phone. I almost dropped it twice while trying to turn on the flashlight but by some miracle it stayed dry. Its range was much worse than I'd hoped. It barely lit three feet in front of me, and the slight glow it produced only served to paint me as a clear target. After turning a quick paranoid circle, I shut the phone off again and settled in for another long wait. Only this time I didn't try to sleep. I left the instant it became possible to distinguish shapes on the ground. If they stayed still, I walked around them. If they moved, I ducked until they were gone. It was a simple system, and on one happy note, I was able to refill my water bottles in the rain. 
That was the most vital resource of all. And when the sun finally banished the last dark corners, I could fully appreciate how fortunate that was. Whether the strangely thin creature was a hallucination or not, I was filled with renewed determination to find my way back before another sunset. I felt like my heart would stop if I would hear that moan one more time. I had not believed a person could die of fright before that experience, but now I can certainly see how it's possible. I had to assume I had passed the cabin, but I couldn't retrace the same path as the day before. Knowing I wouldn't find anything familiar, instead I turned southwest. The muggy air was thick in my lungs, but I kept moving at a ridiculous pace, convinced I would see a trail marker every curve. I'm lucky I didn't have a heat stroke. Hell, maybe I did die out there, none of this is real. It's just my brain's way of processing death. That makes more sense than what happened. It was almost 1pm when I first saw the figure in the daylight. It was only a passing glance between trees, and when I turned back it was gone. Even so, I could see it was facing away and its robe was old and faded. When I looked closer at where it stood, I noticed that the branch that hung just over its head was nearly seven feet tall. It was becoming more difficult to believe these vivid occurrences were hallucinations, but it was still the most logical explanation, especially considering its only competition was the theory that a crazy person was wandering around in the middle of the Amazon and managing to survive. The scare slowed my pace. I was terrified of suddenly bumping into the creature. I didn't want to imagine how it might react. I knew how angry and bitter I was starting to feel. The situation was already a matter of life and death without adding some creepy personification of death to the equation. That little burst of rage was the first time I thought outside of the strictly logical box. Putting aside personal beliefs about ghosts, cryptids, or demons, what about death? Every culture has some grim reaper, a way of giving death a face, an identity. Death is the primary universal constant, which is born, must always die. It's an inescapable, unwavering fact of our world. So it is unthinkable to believe our minds might give death a simple form when our time is near, stalking closer and closer until his hands are finally at our throat. All these thoughts made perfect sense in the moment. I felt like a brilliant philosopher in my delirious state. Another painful hunger cramp gripped my stomach, and a low, despairing moan blew in the wind, as if answering my question. I turned in quick circles to catch sight of the reaper, but I couldn't find him. And now, I know it sounds crazy, but it didn't feel crazy at the moment. I felt, or I should say it felt, like the most obvious thing in the world. Like it could never have been any other way. My mind delved down a rabbit hole of insane ramblings I hope never to repeat. And suddenly, another two hours were gone. My chest went tight with panic, and my already weak and my already weak legs trembled so badly that I fell to my knees. In a burst of anger, I began hitting the ground and screaming nonsense into the vast jungle. But I instantly froze at the sound of a low, careful movement behind me. First, I only looked up, straight ahead. I hadn't been ready to turn but I almost lost control of my bladder when I saw the reaper standing less than 50 yards away, white glowing eyes staring at me from the otherwise black void inside of his hood. I wanted to scream, but my voice was gone. It was only a second before I heard the slow, steady movement again and realized it wasn't footsteps. It was slithering. I turned just enough to confirm there was a snake behind me. Considering it lived in the Amazon, I didn't need to see it clearly to know it was probably deadly. 
I had to act immediately. It was already much too close and coming closer, but any sudden movement would cause it to strike most likely. I couldn't see how long it was or where its head might be, only the body was moving. When I turned back to the reaper, he was coming closer, and his gaze nauseated me. I threw my body into a desperate roll to escape those horrifying eyes and was sent rolling painfully across the lumpy, root-infested floor, away from the snake and death. After several feet, I hit a tree and came to a forced stop, where I struggled back to my feet. The reaper was gone again and the python wasn't hard to spot. I had only seen a small portion of the tail. It had been positioning itself to wrap around me, but I rolled the right way. I didn't care about putting distance between myself and that spot. I walked as fast as I could without thinking of the compass. Something had jabbed into my ant bite when I was down. A fresh wave of pain radiated through my body. The adrenaline was the only thing keeping me going. I had no chance of surviving another night. My last few hours had to be all or nothing. An hour later the temperature began to drop and I knew the light would start to fade at any moment. The reaper's moans began anew and I soon caught glimpses of him between the trees. It started as once every mile or so, but when it increased to five or six times in the same distance, I started seeing those damn white hot eyes again. Then the evening shadows stretched long as the light finally began to fade and I knew the end was near. I could feel it as much as I felt that penetrating gaze burn into my soul. I didn't even realize I was walking through a river until the water rushed over my boot tops. The shock of the cold cleared my foggy mind for just a brief instant, and I understood precisely what my discovery meant. If I followed the river, it would give me a real chance at survival. My last thought before collapsing, my legs refusing to go any further, I wept even harder at that. It felt like the forces of the universe were conspiring against me. My vision was blurring as I lay half in the water, half on the muddy bank. But the one thing I could see was a dark hooded figure approaching. I thought I heard another moan in the last seconds of consciousness, but it was louder, more like a roar. When I woke up, I was in a Brazilian hospital, and it was three days later. I've been on the long road of recovery ever since, and the doctor's official explanation is that I saw the man who rescued me just before losing consciousness. Of course, the roar was the sound of his boat engine, and I don't mind that theory in the least. I much prefer it to my version. In the doctor's story, I'll never have to see those godforsaken eyes again. I only hope to never set foot on that soil again. The Amazon rainforest is terrifying, so please feel free to believe any version or create your own. But remember, cherish the good times, always. Thanks for listening to these creepy and allegedly true in-the-woods horror stories that'll freak you out tonight. As always, if you enjoyed these stories, please be sure to slap that like button as it helps me out a ton. It's been a great year with you guys. We're on year 8 in the swamp now, and I can't believe we're getting so close to 10 years of doing this. Of course, I couldn't do it without the constant support of all of you guys. If you have a story that you'd like to share in a future episode, be sure to submit it at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. I would love to share your stories with everyone here in the swamp. It's stories like yours that help keep this show going on a daily basis. I'd love to know in the comments what story was your favorite tonight. It's always fun to go back and read some classics. Some people are new, so they've never heard them before. And some of you might hear something you forgot about. As always, be sure to comment that code word, wavy wavelength, 
to confuse anybody who didn't make it to the end, and to let me know how many of you made it all the way to the end of this long video. Thank you guys once more, and I'll see you all soon with another creepy episode.